Welcome to The Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here are today's presenters, Emmanuel and Liesl Higgins. Do you know when Satan was talking to Eve in the Garden of Eden, he said to her, when you eat this fruit, ye shall become as gods. It's interesting. Think about the implications of that. Satan was promising Eve that she could become God or a God. And think of it, if that was true, if you could actually become God, or Eve actually became a God, that would free her from being accountable to anyone. Do you see that? If you become a God yourself, then you're not accountable to anyone. You, because you're a God, you can do what you want, and you have ultimate authority. Yeah? And that's the promise that Satan gives to us. Of course it was a lie, because did Eve become a God? No, she became a slave to Satan, a servant to Satan. But sometimes we think, and it seems natural to think like this. And I've thought like this, like, I've got independence. Because I've got freedom of choice, then I can, I don't really want to serve Satan. I know I'm not going to do that. Following God, I want to follow God, but there's some things in my life that I know God doesn't really want me to do, but I'm doing them anyway, and it seems okay. It seems like I can do what I want, and it seems like there's a third option between serving Satan and serving God. Does that make sense? Satan seems to hold out to us a third option, and to have our own independence to do what we want. And it's the promise that he gave to Eve that you should become like a God. But there's only two options in this world, isn't there? There is only two. Even though we might think we're doing what we want, I'm going to do what I want, and my way is is okay. We might think like that, but in reality, we're either serving God or serving Satan. Either constrained by God or constrained by Satan. There's no third option, is there? No. I was just thinking about that while Henry was speaking. It prompted a lot of thought while I was listening to that presentation yesterday. there's, There's even more that we can dig out of God's Word. Amen? Amen. One other thought before we, we dive into the way that leads to life. You know, studying the Bible is like chewing food, digesting food. So we, are, we need to eat. Our body needs nutrients to be, have energy and have life. And so how does that food, how does that happen? You eat it, you've got to chew it up. It starts with an apple, and there's a lot of nutrients in that apple, but you've got to chomp it. You've got to break it up into little pieces in your mouth first. Then it goes into your stomach, doesn't it? The stomach's got acid in it and, it, and it's got muscles that just palpate that food and turn it over and over, and it breaks it down more, doesn't it? And then it goes into your small intestine, and that breaks it down even more. And eventually, it's in its very most basic uh, nutrients, the proteins, the simple sugars, things that your, your intestines can then absorb into your bloodstream. And that then becomes available to your cells. And that's like Bible study. When we, when we take the verse, it's like the apple. And this is what you have to do. I can't do it for you. Um, we all have to do this ourselves. We have to digest this word. And it's breaking it down into the simplest form so that you can absorb it in your mind. And that's something we have to do in our mind. It's like mental digestion. So you take a verse... And you've got to break it down and keep breaking it down, breaking it down so it's so simple to you that you can absorb it into your mind and it becomes part of you. And that's what it means when Jesus said we are to eat the, the bread of life. 
Except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you shall have no part of me, Jesus said. So this is a, like a mental digestion that we go through when we study. Amen? And it's something we can all be doing as this weekend we listen to messages and study God's word together. So the way that leads to life. Life. You know, I talk to some people on the doors canvassing, and it's like you tell them about life and you tell them about eternal life, and you can ask them, oh, did you want to live forever? Wouldn't you want eternal life? And some people are very blasé about that. It's like, nah, this, this life's good enough. And it seems like they don't care about life. And you might have met people like that. When you talk to them, it's like, I don't care. Imagine that that person that doesn't care about life was suddenly put in a life-threatening situation, like on an aeroplane that's just been hijacked and they're flying over the Pacific, something crazy like that. If they're in an extreme life-threatening situation, all of a sudden, do they start to care about life? They do. Amazing change takes place. And it's like, no, I, actually, I want my life. I want to actually live. And no matter how careless some people seem to be, all of us have this deep-rooted desire for life. You and I, we will cling to life at all costs, no matter what happens to us. And how much more precious should eternal life be to us? It's only because it seems like it's so far in the future that we seem a bit careless about it. But no, life is precious to us. It's precious to you, it's precious to me. So the way that leads to life is what we're looking at this morning, and this is relevant and important to each one of us. Think about it. How much does God want us to have life? How much does the God of the universe desire and long for each one of us to experience life, and not only life, but abundant life? In John 10.10, it's the verse that we're all familiar with, where Jesus says, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. The question is, how much does it bother God when he sees people who he came to save, when he sees those people who he gave everything so that they could experience that abundant life, when they choose death, when they turn away from life? We picture the scene of Christ as he wept over Jerusalem, that city that he loved, because they had turned away from their only one chance of life. And the tears on Christ's face just give us a little glimpse into the longing, the yearning of the heart of infinite love that each one of us might experience life. Mm. So it's, it's your intense desire to have life. It's like this inbuilt thing. We want life. We'll cling to it. And it's God's intense desire that we would have life. That's a good start, isn't it? We all want life. We long for it. You and I long for it, and God longs for us to have it. But here's something very amazing. That the way to life is narrow. Is narrow. The Bible tells us that the, the gate is straight and the way is narrow, which leads to life, and few there be that find it. So the question this morning is, why is that way a narrow way? If you long for life, and God longs to give you life, why would the way to that life be so narrow that few find it? Wouldn't that be a, good, a reasonable question to ask? It's what everyone wants, but few find. That's amazing to me. That's incredible. So what do you think 
makes that way so narrow and difficult? That's the question we're going to look at this morning. And it starts by taking a look at the story that's familiar to you, but we'll look at it in a different light, I hope, and it'll be interesting. The story of Naaman. So, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5, and we'll be looking at the first verse. So, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. And it says, Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master, an honorable because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. So here we're introduced to this character in the Bible who is a mighty man. He has led armies into battle and they've come off victor. He is noble. He is a conqueror. People would look up to this guy. He's an important guy. And you can imagine, how would we feel if we were walking down the streets and saw Captain Naaman? Before he was a leper, of course. We'd be like, there's Captain Naaman. People might have almost bowed their knee. They would have felt so in awe that this is a conquering, important, mighty man of valor. And now he's got leprosy. And through a little maid, a little girl, he hears about the God of heaven. And just by the way, on this point, don't ever think that because you're just washing dishes or cleaning or whatever you're doing and you're just a girl that you can't have an influence. This girl, because she really loved the Lord and that was so apparent in her life, she made a very marvelous impact upon a nation. But this little girl tells Captain Naaman about the God of Israel and Captain Naaman, well, he didn't have anywhere else to turn, so what did he do? He went, and the Bible says that he went there with his chariot and his horses. And you can kind of picture, right? So here is a nation that they've defeated. They are the conquerors, and they are going to them for help. And so here is this procession of horses and people and mighty people. People would have wanted to just move out of their way when they saw them. And they show up at the prophet's door. And here is somebody who's used to palace life, he's used to riches, he's used to honor and grandeur, and he's at a humble door of a little prophet. What do you think he's expecting? What do you think's going through his mind at this point? Probably something like, I come all this way just for this? It's like I come from this, I've done all this, and I come to this little humble looking house, and he's used to like this rich palace and servant and. And so he is there waiting at the door. And this is someone people would want to see. He would, people would want to see Captain Naaman. And Captain Naaman is expecting, we read that he's expecting him to come out and call upon his God and do this amazing thing. In the sight of all the servants, he was going to make him healed and it was just going to be great and displaying. And, but the prophet doesn't even come out to see him. He doesn't even come to the door. He just sends out a messenger and says, just go tell him to go wash in the river. And by this time, you can imagine how Captain Naaman's feeling. He's just totally infuriated. He has made step after step of coming all this way. He's expecting so much 
he would have been willing to do a grand and great thing. If the prophet had have said, I want you to climb to that peak and offer 10,000 bullocks and whatever, he probably would have just done it. But now all he's telling him to do is just go wash in the river. And he's thinking, aren't there better rivers where I've just come from? What did I come all this way just for this for? But through the remonstrances of his servants, because otherwise he just would have probably gone straight home, they convince him that it's just a little thing and just to give it a go. And so they all show up, this procession of rich, wealthy, mighty people at the River of Jordan. And you know how the story goes. He dips in the River Jordan seven times and he's healed. He gets life given back to him. Another chance at life for Captain Naaman. What's so incredible about the story when you look at it is is all the steps of meekness, lowliness, humility that Captain Naaman had to go through. First, he listens to a maid. For the captain of the army of Syria, that's an incredible thing, like to listen to a young servant girl. And then to go to Israel was very humbling for Naaman, to take his procession through the land of Israel, getting to the prophet's house, seeing the humble of it, not even seeing the prophet himself, and then being told to wash in the River Jordan. For Naaman, that was an incredible journey, an incredible experience. So, question for you, how easy would it be for you, you're walking past the River Jordan one day, it's a hot day, you're dusty on the road, and you look at that River Jordan and just go, oh, I'd love to take a dip. How easy would that be for you to do? be hard not to, right? So a really easy thing to do. Just jump in that River Jordan, have a, have a, have a wash. It's a very easy thing to do. So I'm gonna, I think we'll rate that a 1 out of 10, right? A very easy thing to be done. Captain Naaman's been told by the prophet, go wash in the River Jordan. How difficult was it for Captain Naaman to carry out that instruction? What would you rate that out of 10? 9, 10? Yeah, something like that, right? Isn't that amazing? But the, the, in, in both situations, the thing that you're doing is exactly the same. It's hot, it's dusty, and you're just taking a dip in the River Jordan. What was it that made one way so difficult and almost impossible for Naaman to do? Exactly, pride. Yeah. And that, friends, is what makes the way a narrow way. It's not a difficult way. It's an incredibly easy way. It's as easy as wash and be clean. But it's almost impossible for the human heart to do. Isn't that amazing? So the the way is narrow because it's a way of lowliness. It's a way of modesty. It's a way of humility. It's a way of meekness. and It's a way of simplicity. Imagine if the prophet, as, as Lisa said, if the prophet had asked Naaman to, let's say the prophet said to Naaman, go and conquer such and such a nation. If you can conquer that nation, then come back here and I'll heal you. You think he would have done it? He would have done that with, he would have taken that like a captain of the army and gone, yes, sir, I'll do that. And taken his army, he would have gone and done it. And it appealed to his pride, didn't it? I'm going to go out and conquer the nation, na- the neighboring nation. But go wash in the River Jordan? Not so appealing, is it? Could have been a muddy river. He did say, aren't the waters of Syria better than the waters of Israel? The time is the time of Huss and Jerome, and the time of the Reformation, the Dark Ages, and light is coming 
to the people. And there's a very interesting experience that we read about in the book, The Great Controversy. So reading from Great Controversy, about this time there arrived in Prague two strangers from England, men of learning who had received the light and had come to spread it in this distant land. Beginning with an open attack upon the Pope's supremacy, they were soon silenced by the authorities, but being unwilling to relinquish their purpose, they had recourse to other measures. It's probably not a, the best idea to make an open attack on the papacy in that time of uh, history. So they resorted to something a little bit more uh, clever, I should say. Being artists as well as preachers, they proceeded to exercise their skill. In a place open to the public, they drew two pictures. One represented the entrance of Christ into Jerusalem, meek and sitting upon an ass, and followed by his disciples in travel-worn garments and with naked feet. The other picture portrayed a pontifical procession, the Pope arrayed in his rich robes and triple crown, mounted upon a horse, magnificently adorned, preceded by trumpeters and followed by cardinals and prelates in dazzling array. So you can picture the contrast here. Travel-worn, humble, and a triple crown followed by this rich, fast procession. Made quite an impact in the city of Prague in something like this, except they said they had a picture of Christ on the donkey coming into Jerusalem, but something that illustrated this same point of the meekness of Christ contrasted to the pomp and pride of the world. Here's another picture. This is one of the most recent pictures with the Pope in the carrying chair, as they call it, um, taken in the mid-20th century. And the humble Christ, the Son of God, who made his entrance into Jerusalem on a donkey. What a contrast. What a contrast between the narrow way, the way of Christ, and the broad way, the way of the world. The story finishes, here was a sermon which arrested the attention of all classes. Crowds came to gaze upon the drawings. None could fail to read the moral, and many were deeply impressed by the contrast between the meekness and humility of Christ the Master and the pride and arrogance of the Pope, his professed servant. There was great commotion in Prague, and the strangers, after a time, found it necessary for their own safety to depart. But the lesson they had taught was never forgotten. Take a moment to think about that example of Christ. In Zechariah we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes unto you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Coronation ceremonies today, and probably even back then in heathen nations, do you think the kings came riding on an ass? No, they came on a prancing horse. They came with their, with their armour, with their delegation of servants and soldiers. But our king, the king of the universe, came on the back of an ass, showing us the way to life. And brothers and sisters, we read in Matthew that, He that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And... The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. That tells us 
that if Jesus humbled himself so much and walked this way of lowliness, if we are followers of Christ, are we greater than him? Do we deserve better treatment than he had? No. Do we deserve an easier way, a smoother path than the path he trod? No, we're his servant, and he is our Lord. Now I'd like to read a statement from one of our pioneers, Charles Fitch. Charles Fitch is, had an amazing experience of conversion. And when I read this statement for the first time, it struck so profoundly. And right here is a converted man, I believe. And it illustrates very beautifully to us the narrow way. So follow along on the screen as you read this dialogue that Charles Fitch writes. He says, On him, therefore, I now endeavoured oft times to cast myself by trusting simply to his faithfulness that he would cleanse me from all unrighteousness. But I had yet no evidence on which I could rest, a belief that I was thus cleansed. I went on thus, continuing to pray and endeavouring to trust in Christ for this cleansing gift of the Holy Spirit desiring above all things to be cleansed from all unrighteousness. In this state of mind, I had one day taken my testament and a little work by Fletcher. Has anyone heard of Fletcher? No. And given myself up to reading, meditation, and prayer on this subject. I opened Fletcher at the following passage. And Fletcher says, But if the Lord be pleased to come softly to thy help, if he make an end of thy corruptions by helping thee gently to sink to unknown depths of meekness. And just, just stop and ponder on these words. It's written in quite old English, but it's very, it's very deep. Just to think about that. If he drown the indwelling man of sin by baptizing, by plunging him into an abyss of humility, do not find fault with the simplicity of his method the plainness of his appearing and the commonness of his prescription. We expect that Christ will come to make us clean with as much ado and pomp and bustle as the Syrian general looked for when he was wroth and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on his God and strike his hand over the place and recover the leper. But Christ frequently goes about a much plainer way to work and by this means disconcerts all our preconceived notions and schemes of deliverance. Learn of me to be meek and lowly in heart, and thou shalt find rest unto your Amen. soul. The sweet rest of perfect humility, resignation and meekness. He goes on to say, If thou wilt absolutely come to Mount Zion in a triumphal chariot, or make your entrance into the New Jerusalem and point a prancing horse, thou art likely never to come there. Leave then all thy worldly misconceptions behind and humbly follow thy king who makes his entry into the typical Jerusalem, meek and lowly, riding upon an ass, yea, upon a colt, the foal of an ass. These remarks... Charles Finch continues, were particularly blessed to me. It seemed to me indeed a most delightful thing to sink into the meek and lowly spirit of the Saviour, 
I'd before been leaving to rise above my sins and thus leave them. Now I felt willing to sink below them into a depth of humility where the proud, unhumbled spirit of sin would not be willing to follow. And it seemed a delightful thing to sink in the arms of my Saviour, below the reach of all my spiritual foes, when I had long been seeking in vain to escape them by soaring above them. This is revolutionary, friends. This is incredible that, you know, we think we've got to overcome sin, right? And yes, we do. We heard that yesterday. And so we think, all right, I'm going to do it. And we try and start climbing that mountain. And we say, yes, we can overcome, we can do this. And we work, we try and soar and try and rise above our sins. But if you've done that, the more we try and struggle upwards, we just slide back down. And I know a lot of people, and I've been tempted to think this myself, that it's just too difficult. It's too hard. I've tried so much, it just doesn't work for me. But when we learn of Christ, and we realize that we cannot do anything good. We are rotten from the, to the core. And we give ourselves to Christ in complete resignation, just cast ourselves on him and learn of him for he, for he is meek and lowly in heart and we will find rest for our souls. Amen. And no longer trying to soar above our sins, but giving those to Christ. And he then empowers our life. Charles Fitch writes, and this is beautiful, friends, this is a converted man right here. I felt then in my spirit a most sweet and heavenly sinking into the arms of my Redeemer, such as I had not before experienced. And it was followed by a calm, unruffled, blissful peace in Christ, such as I need not attempt to describe to those who have tasted it, and such as I cannot describe to the comprehension of those whose hearts have never felt it. It was attended with such a full and delightful submission in all things to the will of God. Such a joy of heart in the thought of being for life and for death and forever altogether at God's disposal. Amen. Such a gladness in giving up earth in all its possessions and pleasures for Christ's sake. Such an overflowing of humble, penitential, grateful love to my Redeemer. Such a satisfaction in the thought of having him as my only everlasting portion. Such praise to his name that I might possess him as the portion of my soul forever. Such full-hearted and unshrinking confidence in all his promises and such a readiness to do and suffer all things, even to the laying down of life for his name's sake, that I felt constrained to say, this is purity of heart. Yeah. I knew that nothing but the Holy Spirit could ever fill such a heart as mine had been with such feelings as these, and I therefore believed it to be the work of the Holy Spirit cleansing my heart from the defilement of sin. I know that some persons are ready to say, all this may be the delusion of Satan, leading you to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. But I do not think that the devil ever yet attempted to fill the heart of any man with the love of God. I don't think so either. What a beautiful experience. And don't we want that to be our experience, friends? To have such a delightful and full submission in all things to the will of God. Joy of heart, such gladness. Overflowing, humble, penitential, grateful love. Satisfaction. 
unshrinking confidence, a readiness to do all things for the sake of Christ. And that comes when, like Naaman, we dip in that river Jordan, we, in, in complete resignation, realizing that we are nothing, give ourselves to God. You know, just thinking about this thought again of, you know, we struggle. It's been quite, I think we all go through an experience of, of walking with God and trying to learn how the gospel practically works in our life. But this is a liberating idea, friends, that in, in struggling to rise above our sins, in a sense, it can almost be pride involved in that. It's like, yes, I can do it. Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm doing really well. Yeah, I haven't done, haven't done so and so for a week or two weeks. And you see how it gets self-centered? When we realize that the Bible says in Isaiah 64 verse 6, it says, all our unrighteousness is as filthy rags. Jeremiah says that the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And David tells us in Psalms 53 that there's none that doeth good. No, not one. There's none that seek after righteousness. And when we realize that, we've got no point to struggle anymore. What are we struggling for? We give ourselves to Christ, wholly and entirely. Just to realize how rotten we can be, um, thinking about this, you know, even good things, like we're going on a canvassing program soon. Amen? Amen. Looking forward to that. And, but you know, we can be tempted to think, and I, and we can, I can be tempted to think, like, I'm out canvassing, I want to get the most books out today, so like, I can be the top of the team. Like, the canvasser has gotten the most books out today. And I want to work really hard to, to get the highest sales out of the whole team for this program. And if we don't get any books out in a day, it's like, what are people going to think of me? It's like, I'm a failure. And like all these thoughts, this is common to man. And you see that naturally, I am just filled with thoughts of self. Even when I'm trying to do a good work for God and take the gospel of the world and canvas, I can be full of self. It's actually impossible for me to not be like that. You know, I try really hard not to be, but that's the deceitful heart that we have. And you really stop and think about it. Our whole life is tainted with selfishness and sin. And we realize that. We give ourselves to God. And he can change us. A couple of quotes. None but God can subdue the pride of man's heart. We cannot save ourselves. In the heavenly courts there will be no song sung to me that loved myself and washed myself, redeemed myself. Unto me be glory, honor, blessing and praise. But this is the keynote of the song that is sung by many here in this world. There's not gonna, no one going to be singing that song in heaven. Amen? And that's a good thing. You know, naturally, our natural human heart is, you know, it's actually not very easy for us to take the idea that we can do nothing to save ourselves of our own efforts. It's actually difficult to accept that. I thought I accepted it, but then as you go on in Christian life, you think, actually, there's a lot more pride in my heart than I thought. Only God can subdue the pride in our hearts. There's a lot more to this than we thought, friends. The whole gospel is comprised in what? 
learning of Christ, his meekness, and his loneliness. That's an incredible statement. The whole gospel is comprised in that, in learning of Christ. How did sin start in heaven? Did it start with Lucifer being proud and uplifted? Yeah? Isn't that how it started? He got lifted up because of his beauty. And therefore the whole gospel, what Christ is trying to restore us back in the image of God, is the opposite of pride. It's the opposite of the way it started. And Christ has shown us the perfect example of that in his life. What is justification by faith? It is the work of God in... In what? Laying the glory of man in the dust and doing for man that which it is not in his power to do for himself. When men see their own what? Nothingness. They are prepared then to be clothed clothed with the righteousness of Christ. You see how fundamental this is to the gospel? The work of justification is just that. It's taking us and putting us where? In the dust. And then God doing that work for us that we can't do for ourselves. It says in manuscripts, what is regeneration? It is revealing to man what is his own real nature, that in himself he is worthless. And this is a lesson that Captain Naaman had to learn right from when he first had to listen to a little maid and then he had to go to a nation that he had defeated to ask help from them and then go to a humble prophet and then not even see the prophet but speak to the servant and then go and wash in a river that he thought wasn't as good as his own rivers. Every step along the way, before he could be regenerated physically, he had to learn this lesson that in himself he was worthless. He had to learn the lesson of humility. And as it was Naaman's lesson, it's a lesson for each one of us today because... Pride and self are too wide for the narrow way, are too wide for the way that leads to life. And friends, this is hard to take. It really is. It's hard for me. It's hard for all of us. Read that statement again, that in ourself we are what? Worthless. Isn't that a difficult statement to take? You know, I really think we need to pray, and we can do that this weekend. Each one of us pray to God that he can subdue our hearts because only he can. So we realize our worthlessness. And you know what? When we realize our worthlessness, strangely enough, that is liberating. It is liberating because if, if I'm incredibly important and incredibly valuable and I've got all this inherent goodness in me, then what that means is I've got something I've got to protect and the only way I can protect is to fight. Does that make sense? So like arguments, fighting, strife, all these things in the world come from people trying to protect the goodness that they have in themselves or their own self. But when we realize we're worthless, we're nothing, and we like give ourselves to God, and like I've got nothing to protect anymore, and if I've got nothing to protect, there's no reason to fight. There's no reason to fight in the flesh. There's only a reason to fight for God and for the honour and character of our King. Amen?
And that's why the Bible says, Jesus said, Learn of me, for I'm meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. It's realizing our worthlessness that leads us to find that rest in Christ. This is powerful, and it's liberating. And it's the key of peace and happiness and joy in life. Amen? So the way is narrow, because it's a way of lowliness, modesty, humility, meekness, and simplicity. And let's highlight this word modesty. When we think of modesty, you think of like dress, things like that. But I want to show you an ultimate example of modesty in our Savior Jesus. In Zechariah 13, verse 6, the verse that's applied and what applies to, to heaven, and one of these shall say to him, Christ, what are these wounds in thine hands? Stop right there. If Captain Naaman comes back from battle, and he's just had a conquering battle, but he got wounded. He got a sword wound on his arm. But he, like, he, he got the sword wound by taking out the opposing nation's king. Something really heroic, right? He comes back, his wound gets, gets healed, and then he comes to some friends, um, and he's at a banquet with the king and all the generals, and someone says, what's this wound in your, in your arm, Captain Naaman? And he like swells his pride, and he squares his shoulders, and he tells the story. He has a story of conflict and battle and how he bravely pushed through the ranks of the enemy soldiers to the king and, and all this. And he's like really proud of that fact, right? That's the way of the natural human heart. But look at how Jesus responds to this question. And then he shall answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Because that is ultimate modesty. Amen? ultimate meekness. Christ had no reason to say that. He didn't, he didn't get wounded in the house of his friends, really. Well, we wouldn't think it like that. He was wounded by, killed by people who were his enemies, people he came to save, but people that rebelled against him. And yet in his meekness and loneliness, even in heaven as, the, as God, just wounds that I received in the house of my friends. Isn't that beautiful? I want to be like that. Have a character like that. Amen? I can't manufacture it. Neither can you. But God can subdue our hearts to be like that. Christ considered us friends when we were enemies. We could also say the way is narrow because it's a way of submission, yielding all, surrender, sacrifice, self-denial. All goes along with those other things, doesn't it? You know, even though the narrow way is a way of Surrender, a way of yielding all and self-denial. It's also a way of honor and nobility. The narrow way is the way of real nobility. It's the way of the real great men and women of the earth. It is noble to sacrifice. And the way of duty is the way of honor. And when we realize our worthlessness and we enlist in the ranks of Christ, we embark on that road of nobility and honor. One other point that's really interesting, the way is narrow because it's a way of faith. The way is narrow because it's a way of faith. How does faith make the way narrow, you might ask? How does faith make it narrow? You know, as humans, we like to guarantee an outcome. We like to have an outcome that's guaranteed and that the only guarantee is me. Think about that. If you're doing a job 
if you sometimes entrusting the job to someone else can be a difficult thing. But if you're doing it, it's okay, because you know it's going to be done. In salvation as well, we like to guarantee salvation by what we do, by our works. If I do all the, I know, I know I can do all the right things and I'll be saved. Great. It's in my control. Faith places the guarantee outside of your control. Faith puts the outcome entirely in the hands of God. And that is actually a very difficult thing for us to do. A lot more difficult than it sounds. Think about the great examples of faith that you can think of, any of them in the Bible. Any great explayer of faith, Jericho, wars coming down, the uh, armies of Israel going into other nations to, to conquer, the choir that went out in front of the army, the guarantee was only, was completely in the hands of God. You see what I mean? And I've seen this time and time again in, in ministry work and, and, and working together. We, we like to guarantee an outcome in everything. We don't like to take a step of faith that places the outcome in God's hands. I wish I could say it simpler. I think you know what I mean. Yeah? But that's what faith is like. Faith is placing yourself in God's hands and not sure what the outcome is going to be in and of ourselves. We can, by faith, be sure of the outcome. Yes, God will come through for us. Amen? But I can't guarantee that of myself. It's a whole dependence on God and His Word for that outcome. And that is actually a difficult thing for human nature to do. And that makes the way a narrow way. Could Naaman be sure of the outcome when he dipped in the River Jordan? He was... No. He was quite unsure about that, at least to start with. But he had faith because he went and did it anyway. So those things that we aren't sure of, faith makes them sure, doesn't it? And it's the faith in God and in his divine power. Friends, there's more things we, you could... You could come up with about the narrow way, but these are just two things we, we want to highlight this morning. Faith in the meekness and lowliness of Christ. We've got a few short, punchy, one-liner quotes to finish and follow along with the screen before we have a word of prayer. Think it not a step down to become a Christian. God's way, or in the world's way, down is up in God's kingdom. Meekness and lowliness is up because becoming a Christian is placing the feet on the ladder of progress. Amen? The religion of Christ elevates the receiver, refines his taste, sanctifies his judgment, strengthens his intellect, and prepares him, I love this bit, for the society of the pure and holy Amen. angels. Amen. It is a position and honor that we desire to be acknowledged members of the Lord's family is the highest honor that can be bestowed upon man. Amen? You're looking for honor? Here's the highest way. Is it gold that we are seeking? You'll find it in the city of God. Its streets are paved with gold. The followers of Christ have a cross to lift in separating themselves from the world. Their names do not stand among the great ones of the earth. But they are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
which is the Hall of Fame for all the greatest, most noble, most honourable men and women of all ages of this earth's history. Amen. So talk not of your blessings outside of Christ. They are empty and worthless. Oh, that the veil might be swept aside and we might get a clear view of the King in his beauty. How the world would pale and fade before us. If we could have but one view of the celestial city, we would never wish to dwell on earth again. If we could just catch that one glimpse, friends, of the heavenly city, and we can for studying the word and prayer and meditation with God. Only a little while longer and we shall see him as he is and be made like him. Will we not give ourselves to him now? Realizing our worthlessness. And in that realizing our worthlessness, finding the liberation that there is to be found in surrender to God. Will you not embrace the way, the way of nobility, the way of sacrifice, the way of happiness, the way of life, the narrow way? It was wide enough for Christ, and it is wide enough for me. Amen? Let's pray. Let's kneel as we pray. Our Father in heaven, only you can subdue our heart when we realize our selfishness, our pride, and the natural inclinations of our heart this morning. And Father, we see the contrast between the world and the life of Christ. And we long for that purity of heart. Father, we hunger and thirst after your righteousness. Like Charles Fitch experienced, like Naaman washing the River Jordan. Father, please give us that experience that we would have that deep abiding peace, that blissful, sweet surrender in the infilling of your Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, please work in our hearts this weekend. Draw us nearer to you. Set our feet more firmly on the path that leads to life. Lord, this is our earnest desire. We ask for these requests. For Christ's sake, because of what he has done for us. And in his name we pray. Amen. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABM Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456 Our email address is radio at 3abn That is radio at the 3 abn Australia. All one word. .org.au Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc PO Box 752 Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia 
Thank you for your prayers and financial support. It's time for Balanced Living with Vicki Griffin. Hope for the diabetic. Jimmy was a big baby, 10 pounds at birth. By age 10, he tipped the scales at 150 pounds. Just baby fat, his mother reasoned. He'll grow out of it. Jimmy did grow out of it and into something worse, diabetes. By age 13, he was 20 pounds heavier, tired all the time, and constantly hungry. He satisfied his hunger with donuts and soft drinks. At school, he chose pizza, hamburgers, hot dogs, fries, and brownies or cookies for dessert. He rarely ate salad, whole grains, beans, or fresh fruit. He got very little exercise, and he was thirsty no matter how much pop he drank. He suffered from depression and poor concentration. His pediatrician told him that if he persisted on his present course, he would be dead by the age of 25. Sadly, Jimmy's story is not uncommon. One out of three children born in the United States in the year 2000 will develop diabetes by young adulthood. There are roughly 30 million adult diabetics and nearly 90 million who are in the process of developing diabetes, called prediabetes. These are grim numbers, but there is hope for the diabetic and for the prediabetic. Lifestyle changes dramatically change the numbers and the outcome of this disease. You're not a number. You're a person. And there's hope for a new life, better health, and hope in your healing journey. Well, what is diabetes? Diabetes is actually a group of diseases characterized by high levels of blood sugar. But that's only the tip of the iceberg. Diabetes is a metabolic disorder that causes the body's cells to be deprived of fuel or glucose. When uncontrolled, it causes problems with circulation, heart health, kidney function, eyesight, immune function, depression, mental processing, and even cancer and dementia risk. Most diabetics, up to 95%, are type 2, a form of the disease that develops due to a combination of inactivity, poor nutrition, and overweight. 8 out of 10 people who suffer from type 2 diabetes are overweight. Those who carry fat at their waist are at the highest risk. Type 1 diabetics have an autoimmune disorder that requires daily insulin. All forms of diabetes respond well to positive lifestyle choices. Inactivity doubles the risk of developing diabetes. Being overweight triples the risk. When waist size in women increases from 28 to 38 inches, the risk of developing diabetes is increased sixfold. The good news is that as much as 90% of type 2 diabetes can be prevented with lifestyle improvement, even if diabetes runs in your family. The great news is that the very tools that prevent diabetes also manage and help to reverse symptoms. A low-fiber diet causes a shift in the gut bacteria called microbiome that affect metabolism, weight gain, and even insulin resistance. A diet high in fiber, rich in vegetables, fruits, beans, nuts, and seeds shifts the gut population to aid weight loss, insulin sensitivity, 
inflammation, and overall metabolism. Think crunch foods, such as celery, raw veggies, apples, and other fibrous foods. Adding crunchy fiber foods and beans to your meals is a delicious way to curb cravings, cut calories, and improve weight and blood sugar control. How can this terrible trend of diabetes be reversed? Lifestyle choices can dramatically affect the risk, severity, and progression of prediabetes and diabetes. Lifestyle links for preventing and even reversing prediabetes and early diabetes include quitting smoking, managing stress, getting adequate sleep, choosing whole foods, and carving out regular exercise, especially walking after meals. Make memory meals. Have more home-cooked meals that are based on vegetables, fruits, and beans. Eat a high-fiber breakfast, including whole grains and fresh fruit. Start your meals with vegetable soups, salad, or fruit, and increase beans every day if possible. Eliminate or curb high-fat fast foods and sweets and decrease or eliminate meat and dairy intake. Ditch the drinks. Eliminate soda pop and replace with water. Replace alcohol and caffeinated beverages with herbal teas and drink at least 8 to 10 glasses of water every day. And begin your walk to wellness. Walk briskly for 10 minutes after meals to help balance blood sugar. Plan for daily moderate exercise. Create an exercise plan that builds up to a total of one hour a day and exercise with friends to keep you motivated. You are engineered for success. Every human being is designed by God for renewal, restoration, and recovery. Uncontrolled diabetes disrupts body systems, destroys health, drains energy, and contributes to depression. Fortunately, Positive lifestyle choices can help the diabetic to recover health, restore the body, and renew strength. God's plan for healthful living also includes powerful principles for restoring mental, spiritual, and emotional health. Whether you suffer as a result of poor choices, a destructive environment, or inherited risks for depression and disease, God wants to place you on His healing path a path which ends in eternal life. Even though we live in a world where suffering happens as a result of sin and evil, we can avoid the needless suffering that comes through choices that violate health principles that govern our bodies. Thankfully, even when we've made wrong choices, we have the promise, I will restore health to you and heal you of your wounds, says the Lord. Jeremiah seventeen thirty. One day at a time, Jimmy started exercising and eating better. He was able to avoid the terrible prognosis of his doctor that day. Forming new habits requires a one-day-at-a-time mindset, a mindset that doesn't look back at past failures. The Apostle Paul illustrated this can-do mindset. This one thing I do, forgetting what is behind me and reaching forward to the things which are ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of God's heavenward call in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, 13 and 14. Will you make the decision for better choices and health today? A healing path is waiting for you. You've been listening to Balanced Living presented by Vicki Griffin.
One city I've enjoyed visiting is Philadelphia, especially the historic sites connected with the founding of the United States. Independence Hall, where the Declaration of Independence was adopted, the famous Liberty Bell, the Benjamin Franklin sites. Now, Franklin was a colorful character. He had a giant intellect and a razor-sharp wit. His portrait's on the $100 bill. He's one of only two people featured on U.S. currency, not a former president. How many so-called Benjamin Franklin sayings aren't really Ben Franklin quotes at all? He might have said, honesty is the best policy, but others said it long before he did. God helps those who help themselves? Originated in ancient Greece, not with Ben Franklin. Beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy? Franklin never said that. It's blasphemous anyway. Democracy has been defined as two wolves and a sheep discussing plans for lunch. No, that wasn't him. And although he did say nothing can be said to be certain except for death and taxes, he didn't coin the phrase. Evidently, Benjamin Franklin borrowed very well. If you want quotations, the best book to find them is the Bible. And I want to share a good one with you today. Jesus said in John 8 and verse 36, If the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Freedom, a magnificent commodity and described by the American Declaration of Independence as an unalienable right. It's most perfectly experienced by those who are in Christ. Jesus offers you freedom from sin and its consequences. He offers you freedom to live eternally, freedom from guilt, and freedom to know Him forever. If Jesus makes you free, you are truly free. And that quote is one you can believe, one you can trust. Jesus really said it. It's really true. Today, as you remember freedom, remember the true freedom. It's found in Jesus and you can be his today. Let's live today by every word. Violence and abuse are prevalent today. Satan has made sure of that. In working with victims, I've discovered a common thread. Victims usually have a low opinion of themselves. They're fearful of stepping away. They think they can't make it on their own. But God tells us to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. Number two is to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. This means loving ourselves as children of God. It includes treating ourselves with dignity and respect in the same way that we treat others. Why? Because we teach others how to treat us by the way that we treat ourselves.